Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Pastor, happy Monday, first Monday after Valentine's Day. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I have had a pretty hectic week, pretty busy, um, which you and I have talked about. I, I don't mind busy weeks, so it hasn't been too um, overwhelming for me. But I'm odd. So today is a uh, holiday. If, if we can call it that in the United States, um, manu- another manufactured holiday um, at, as President's Day. And so it, it was actually a bit of a relief to know that quite a bit of my uh, my normal Monday activity had been canceled <laughs> because oh. people are celebrating and are not in their offices and doing work on this on this holiday. So I'm, I'm actually enjoying my Monday. Yeah, th- this is a... Uh... <clears throat> from a sort of holiday perspective, this is such a weird day. I don't, I don't right. really understand it. <laughs> I know. Um, I don't either. <laughs> but so so many of our holidays are socially constructed. Um, I mean, I'm glad that people have, you know, an extra day off. I know that like teachers and people who um, have the national holidays um, as days off, I'm, I'm grateful that they have that time off. It it doesn't mean time off for me. And, and right. Same. I, I have... I have been working like seven days a week. We we talked about that the other day, and yeah. um, I too have been very busy. But you know, I'm, I'm glad actually um, to be here with you and connecting and accelerating this conversation and doing this work. It this work with you, you know, brings so much joy. So um, I always look forward to our recording times. You're so sweet. <laughs> You're so sweet. So okay. We so friends, we will talk about this at on a on a later episode. But Dr. Robin and I have now both watched uh, Judas and the Black Prophet. Oh my god! On yes. HBO Max, yes. we I, I have told everybody I know if you are able to get HBO Max, if you have a friend who is willing to give you their login for a night, this movie is one of the most beautiful pieces of art. That has come out of um, the 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 minds and hands of of black creators mm. in the in the last um, decade, as far yeah. as I'm concerned. It is worth your time. It is actually worth your time to watch it more than once. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's going to be around until the probably around the middle. I think the middle of March, March fifteenth ish. But I cannot encourage you more. If you have not seen this film. Go watch yes. this film. Yes, um, it is based on the um, work of the Black Panthers, specifically the work of the Chicago-based uh, Black Panthers, and it is just stellar. It's remarkable. Yeah, 
I love the film. I can't wait for us to have that conversation uh, about the film and all yeah. the intricacies uh, therein. Uh, but but today we're continuing the conversation around <clears throat> you know this this sort of in energy that we have in the world that is mediated by uh, social capital or money. Yes. Yeah. And I'm I'm very excited for this conversation because I think that if, you know, I, I know that both you and I are very passionate about um, eradicating things like poverty and, yes. you know, systems that reinforce poverty. And, you know, I think this is a way that we can begin to reimagine how to eradicate systems that, um, fundamentally displace people out of participating in an economic system. Yes. And so I'm super excited about today. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a conversation that, um, for lack of a better phrase, you know, levels the initial playing field for all of us. Um, and we are really excited to talk about universal basic income uh, UBI for those of you that that may have have seen this conversation and be happening in in other spheres of your world, um, we're excited that we get to welcome um, a, a a person who is really deeply invested in this conversation and um, is working every day to find ways both within our political structures and within our economic structures to to um, research and advocate for this. Um, Scott Sands is uh, from New Orleans, which we've already had a conversation about my heart and, and how my heart, a little piece of my heart sits there on a regular basis. Um, but Scott's work is um, work that some of you may already be following. And if you haven't um, heard about universal basic income, or if it's something that isn't um, familiar to you, or if it's quite frankly something that some of you might be confused or concerned about, this is the absolute right time to have this conversation and to learn more about it. And so we're really excited that uh, that today we get to do that. I, I just want to say, maybe when you and I do Mardi Gras in New Orleans, since you're going to stay up all night, maybe right. I could do Mardi Gras with Scott because he he may also be an old man like me. He may also be an old man like you. It's possible, yes. Um, I'm sure we can talk about that after we have the very important conversation about universal basic income. Um, you know, Mardi Gras is happening right now in a much different way in New Orleans than it did yeah. before. But, um, but yeah, I'm. <laughs> every time, every time you talk about me staying up all night long, it just makes me laugh because it's so true. Oh. <laughs> Scott Santens, welcome to the Activist Theology Podcast. We are really thrilled that you're with us today. <laughs> Thanks for having me here today. I'm happy to be here. So I'd love it if you would just just kind of give our listeners an understanding of who you are, um, how you came at this work, why it's a passion of yours, and kind of how you see yourself kind of engaged in this in a real time way on a, on a daily basis. 
Yeah, I, I came about this uh, back in 2013, and I was introduced through the kind of technological argument angle. Uh, there was a discussion that hit the front page of Reddit just about like how quickly technology was advancing and how just we weren't, as a society, understanding really what that meant and recognizing just how fast it was going and, um, you know, what future was um, was going to you know play out from that, um, you know, based on our decisions that we make today. And I looked into um, this concept of, you know, like, so if we're going to be automating all these jobs, um, you know, what is the way to make technology work for all of us? And uh, that led me to the concept of a UBI. Um, people may know it as universal basic income. Uh, I like to refer to it as unconditional basic income uh, to stress the unconditionality of it. And right. so what it is, is it's an amount of money. It's uh, basically society investing in itself um, with an amount of money that is unconditional and universally provided uh, and regularly provided. So say every month or so. And uh, in the form of cash, and that is is what is a a, a basic income. Um, you can think of it as basically like social security for all, right. um, but it's a flat amount per you know everybody. And uh, I got into you know learning about where this idea you know came from, the the evidence behind it from experiments, the arguments for it, um, you know, philosophically. And um, also, I just learned more about the way the existing safety net works. And, you know, that was a big one for me is just learning the, you know, dirty details of, of what happens as a result of conditionality and non-universality, uh, the stigmatization of welfare, just how many people are excluded from the existing safety net. Mm -hmm. And really learning about that. Uh, drove it home that this wasn't just something that's like for the future. This is something that we should have done decades ago. And it's not only something that we can and should be doing, but there's definitely strong arguments for, you know, why we should have been doing this from the very beginning as far as like the creation of private property itself. Right. And there are other countries that are doing this very successfully, correct? There are countries who have experimented with it, and you know that even okay. includes us. Like uh, one of the things I was really surprised by when I first started learning about this was that we experimented with guaranteed income um, back in the '70s, and Nixon proposed one in 1969, and it passed through the House in 1970 and 1971. Uh, both times didn't make it through the Senate, but if it would have passed then there would have been a guaranteed income for families and mm. we would have been in we would have been guaranteeing income based solely on one's income and, and nothing else and you know that would have just dramatically reduced poverty and i think would have led to a lot of other countries adopting this uh, approach as well now nixon's plan was a stair step approach right it was a an approach that was it a flat fee for families or did it did it stagger based on how much or how little you made? 
Yeah, so here was the uh, negative income tax approach. Right. Okay. And so that's, um, you basically, you get the full amount if you have an income of zero. And then for every dollar you earn, you would lose, say, 50 cents of the amount of income that you receive. Gotcha. And also it was for families only, so it wouldn't have gone to single adults. It was kind of more like a child allowance, like uh, mm. Romney just uh, uh, proposed and that Cal Biden is looking to include um, as well. So it's more similar to that. Uh, but yeah, it, it altered the amount of income people received based mm. on the size of the household and the total income of the household. But I mean, 50 years ago, it could have changed the landscape of yeah. poverty for this country and set us up to be having conversations around universal ba basic in income, you know, as late as early as the mid to late 70s, as we saw the benefits or drawbacks from the plan that Nixon put forward. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I firmly believe that if we had past Nixon's family assistance plan, that we would have gone towards a UBI uh, by now. So I, I feel curious about the role of race in this. Um, and and I, I think, you know, it's hard for me to separate um, many of these things without also recognizing the impact of things like the acceleration of whiteness in the white family as distilled in the nuclear family. You know, also as a trans and queer person who, who um, you know, doesn't want to participate in the institution of marriage, how, how would you imagine a UBI framework or system that holds together all the complexities that are you know, present in 2021. Yeah. So uh, again, I like to refer to unconditional basic income using unconditional um, as the key word, because yeah. I, I really think that is just a primary uh, component that basically we, by withholding access to resources on conditions, um, you know, be it that, you know, you're, you, you, you know, have a have a job, or that you're seeking work is a is a typical way of of um, having a condition. Or that you don't you, have an address. Yeah, you you don't have an address. Um, let's say you're you're um, you don't have any children. You um, are unmarried, or you're married. You know, there's all sorts of different ways of withholding um, access to resources. And by providing people access to resources unconditionally as individuals, right. so it's you know if you're five people in a household, then you know each person has their own basic income, and you know that goes to kids as well. Um, the way I look at it, but by having that individual uh, power, and that's what it is: is it unconditionally provides power, so yeah. that you have the power to say no. And also um, the freedom to say yes. I think that's a it's a good kind of quick way of understanding what UBI is. And so power to say no is you know you can imagine not only does this apply to uh, employment. So you know you can by by being able to say no to a job and usually say no to a job at the wage that it's offering, then that has the power. So you can actually better determine what forms of employment you will accept at the pay you will accept and, and enables you to not only um, 
a proof of employment, but also to actually choose volunteering uh, to make your own work, to find your own way in an unpaid way. I think that also goes to like the actually the the theological concept of um, you know calling, as um, as uh, I believe it was Luther who um, talked about where it's like needed two qualities uh, like service to one's neighbor and in the spirit of love right. to you know pursue your calling, yep. and I think that you know UB actually really helps that because. Um, you know, not all callings are through employment and there are barriers to actually being a part of your community and to doing, you know, volunteer work and just stuff that you feel is important to be doing uh, because it needs to be done uh, because you have to be able to afford to do it. You know, if you don't have your basic needs met, then that's what you have to, to seek out. Um, but if you have your basic needs met, then suddenly there's so many more options available to you. So that's kind of the freedom to, to say yes aspect of it. And not only does it go to work, but of course it goes to our relationships in general. So, you know, the power to say no means that if you're in an, an abusive relationship, then you can exit that relationship. And, you know, so many people are stuck in abusive relationships because of economic reasons that they right. feel they can't leave. And also when it comes to, say, coming out, and, and that's something that a lot of uh, LGBTQ people um, talk about to me, is just like how much of a difference that that would have made to have that unconditional access to resources um, to enable them to, you know, come out in a way without that fear of, right. of what results from that. I like I like the language of uncondition or unconditionality. Yeah, I think that um, I I often talk about how do we create conditions for you know a livable world, right? And when when we think about the conditions under which many of us are living, um, it is it they are conditions that are actually not livable, and and so I really like reframing um, universal basic income to unconditional basic income. I really appreciate that. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I, it's I, the reason I talk about that too, is just like, there's each experiment that, that happens. Um, I, there's, there's someone who, um, you know, if they're interviewed about this and they're explaining what UBI is, um, they really stress the unconditionality of it. So it's not only me stressing it, um, it's those who experience it. They feel that that's the most powerful component of it is that lack of conditions. And um, yeah, also I should mention too that I crowdfunded my own basic income and have been you know living with a basic income since uh, a crowdfunded basic income since 2016. And that was also my own takeaway from this is just um, the you know the, the the no strings attached kind of um, you know ability to always know that there's going to be income you know on the first of the month that you've you've got your basics covered that no matter what happens the worst happens you know you're going to eat and you're not going to lose your housing that you're going to be you know okay and that sense of security that like unconditional security is is just really transformative um, but I didn't realize how little security I felt until I felt it. And I think that's something that a lot of people, um, you know, don't appreciate either uh, because they just, you know, insecurity is just so normalized. It's just like part of our culture right. uh, that you, people don't recognize just how different it is to actually feel security. And I, I, when I read that in your bio that you crowdfunded your your salary, basically your in your income, can you 
share that story and and help us like understand why you did that what what was behind that and then why you continue to do it yeah so i i faced the kind of the same catch-22 that i feel you know a a lot of people have especially people who want to get involved um with basic income or just in any kind of activism in general is how do you afford it like if you um if you don't have uh, income of some way, if you don't have some circumstances that enable you to do like unpaid work, then you have to find a way for someone to pay you to do something. And that's extremely difficult. And of course, you know, back it, back in 20, 2014, you know, was when I started the process of crowdfunding a basic income, you know, it was just a topic that hardly anyone was was really talking about, and I felt it needed to be talked about more, and it needed to be explained more. I felt that there was uh, it kind of existed in like academic circles, but it wasn't really out there in the culture that there, you know, no one's going to read like some forty page paper about basic income in in academic language. You know, you need to have really you know, bite-sized uh, blogs and, and, and videos and podcasts and, and things that, um, that people are more likely to to read and consume and share with others to help um, explain it. And, you know, how was I going to do that? You know, I, I need to have my own uh, basics covered. I have to have income to, to do this. So uh, around then, Patreon launched. And I thought, mm-hmm. well, this is actually really interesting because if I can get enough people to support this work, you know, through a dollar a month, um, you know, if that was as little as that, you know, I get enough people to to manage that, then I could be free to actually do all this that I felt was so important to do. And so I, I, I decided to start that. And yeah, I started that process in late 2014, and it took all of 2015. And of course, along the way, it was you know a monthly increase. So you know, like let's say February was I was at $200 a month, and maybe in like March it was 300, 400, something like that. And then so at the end of the year, um, I had finally uh, gotten it up to the amount of of over a thousand dollars per month, which is what I felt needed to be. Um, you know, the minimum, I was always talking about $1,000 per month basic income as, mm-hmm. as a basic income. And, um, yeah, along that, that way, I not only did it, you know, enable me to, to pursue this work, but I also even started feeling that it doesn't even need to be $1,000 per month to feel something, you know, even at like $300 per month, I was feeling, you know, like, just like kind of the food concerns are gone, you know, like it, worst case scenario, I have at least not going to starve, you know, and that may sound like, like nothing, you know, like people can look, oh, $300 per month. That's, that's no, you can't live on that. That's, that's pointless. Um, but it isn't like just having something that's unconditional really makes a difference. And yeah, I'm fortunate that I was able to, um, achieve that. And that's actually enabled me to, to continue doing this, um, day after day after day, as you know, what I consider to be, you know, my own calling, I guess. It's such a, it's such an interesting, interesting and and important way to talk about it. You know, Robin and I often talk about the 
kind of the the understanding we have nowadays of social justice and how social justice really has become kind of this industrial complex. And part of the reason that is, is because it is infused with privilege because it is only it or it is often the privileged who have the capacity to work in the arena right. because they have income in other ways. So it leaves out a significant you know, part of the population for whom these kinds of justice initiatives are most important and, and are most uh, benefit the most because they because they do not have the capacity or the privilege to have the kind of income that affords them the ability to, you know, work half a day or, um, you know, get a salary regardless of how many hours each week they actually put in or not have to work two jobs because they're or three jobs because their their household, you know, relies on it. This, this understanding of of justice and activism and work in the world is so centered around white bodies right now, because that's where the privilege, the economic privilege, privilege lies. Um, yeah. And I, I wonder if, um, so, so I appreciate that, that there's, you know, an understanding of how, you know, how important the, the, the crowdfunding or at least the, the, the basic, um, you know, floor or foundation mm-hmm. of income is. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit? So a note to our listeners, Scott put out a, a, a video a couple of weeks ago using Legos, which I appreciate. I'm a visual learner. It was, it was, um, it was a really good um, uh, way for me to understand and kind of answer in my head some of the challenges that I had heard kind of in the ether, specifically around, you know, Andrew Yang's presidential run and his push for UBI in the public square. You know, this this video kind of helped me understand where the current distribution of funds is is occurring and then how how the redistribution of it or our reimagining of how we use it could change the trajectory for all of America, specifically those who are the poorest and 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 most in need of of assistance. Can you talk a little bit about the actual like logistics of of a shift in this way? I mean, I know a lot of our listeners aren't like money talk and tax talk isn't exactly what, you know, gets us up in the morning and and keeps (laughs) us overly intrigued. But I think it's important to kind of understand how the reallocation of the resources actually is not something that's untenable for us right now, meaning it's not something that's going to cost us more. Yeah, yeah. So, um, thank you um, about the the video. That's cool. You watched it. Um, uh, as Dr. King even talked about that, uh, you know, he said that the that a guaranteed income has always existed, um, you know, for the rich, mm. and it's 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 entirely true in in multiple ways. So, you know, if you're if you're born rich, then you've already got that economic security and and resources through your parents. Uh, in fact, it's very uh, common for kids of, of wealthier parents to receive 
um, you know, even around a thousand dollars per month, um, you know, if they're even if they're in, in school or even if they're post school and out on their own, like there's a lot of people paying their rent, uh, you know, and food, uh, call it like a parental basic income. And of course, it's it's if you're wealthier that 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 that's a possibility. And um, but yeah, that's also why so many businesses are, are most likely started up by people um, who come from wealthier families. Um, and uh, besides that, then uh, as I describe in the in the Lego video, that we actually provide a lot of assistance to the rich through what's called tax expenditures. So mm-hmm. these are their deductions and subsidies and credits and all the loopholes that they have. Um, about $1.5 trillion worth of this it flows to uh, the top and 17% of it flows to the top 1%. So this is very disproportionate in where most of this uh, goes to the top. So it's it's interesting to me that you know someone who's rich can essentially get thirty thousand dollars from the government to help them afford a a larger you know mansion than they would other otherwise be able to afford, and at the same time, you know all this housing assistance is is flowing to the rich, but the housing assistance flowing to the poor is very stigmatized and it's full of conditions and you know giant wait lists and you know the inability to choose exactly where you want to live um it's just entirely different so there's the a form of visible welfare that most people see and it's very stigmatized but there's this invisible welfare that goes to the middle class and to the rich and i think that's part of the problem too is that if you don't recognize that you're getting something from the government you feel all you are is taxed and then you're like oh well i'm not getting anything those people are getting something but not me uh, but actually, everybody is essentially getting some form of welfare from the government. We just don't call it that. We call it tax credits and, and everything else. And we just make it so much easier if you're a member of the middle class or the rich versus uh, the poor and the marginalized. And so if you recognize that we're already spending so much of this money across these various programs and treating people so differently, um, depending on where they are in the income spectrum or also um, their you know, color of their skin and, and um, these kinds of things, then we can hopefully recognize that we can just make it unconditional and universal instead of this, you know, giving $30,000 to someone in the top 1% in the form of a giant tax deduction that we can just provide them with $12,000 for the year and just in the same way that we treat everybody else and make sure that those at the bottom also get that without conditions and without stigma. And I think that if everyone actually was invested in and trusted by their government, um, then they would change the way that they think about other people and about the government and um, about the programs themselves and would be more supportive. And I think it would just be, you know, very, very transformative. In fact, one of the things that I, I was really impressed by is from the Finland experiment that looked into this was, um, you know, they were so concerned about if people were going to work more or less. And meanwhile, one of the results was that uh, trust increased over 10%. And I think that is really says something that, you know, I think we're in a crisis of trust, that we don't trust in politics, they don't trust institutions, you know, and that, and that flows to 
a bunch of other issues. Like, you know, imagine um, the vaccine going out right now. You know, mm-hmm. and if you don't trust scientists, if you don't trust government, then maybe you're less likely to take that vaccine. And of course, that will affect everybody. So I, I really do think that that this is about building like this foundation, this floor underneath everybody. And part of this is, is trusting everybody saying, I trust you to use access to resources. You know, I'm not going to pretend that you're not going to, you know, do anything at all. That you're going to be lazy, that you're not going to, you know, take any employment whatsoever. I trust you and you're going to do what you feel is most important. I love that. I, I think that we have, created environments and societies that um, are no longer networks of trust. And I, I feel very curious, how do we reimagine networks of trust in this moment? You know, especially when there is such stigma around people who are poor or working poor and, and, you know, they're the sort of stigma around people of color are lazy and, and, you know, I feel, I just feel very curious about how do we, how do we both pursue this unconditional basic income and also create networks of trust to facilitate an unconditional basic income? Have you spent any time thinking through that? Yeah, I mean, they, if this really is like a, you know, positive feedback loop kind of thing in a catch 22 again, where, you know, if you aren't trusted, it's harder to trust. And if they, you don't have a, a basic income, that it's harder to advocate for a basic income, you know, to increase trust. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I think that, yeah, that's, that's, that's certainly part of the challenge. Um, but yeah, I, I totally agree that, that, um, you know, these communities of trust are, are, are so important and that, you know, one way I think about UBI too is this, um, you know, re- removal of barriers to community because you can see that that these barriers uh, to community exist based on this lack of access to resources. And so if we make sure that people actually have that access, then, you know, we're a very social um, organism. You know, we it's another way of looking at this is, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And, you know, we all have our basic needs of, of, you know, food and shelter and security, but once those needs are met, we also have our needs that involve, um, you know, social, social cohesion and family units and, and friends and, you know, time spent socializing with others and being part of our community. That's really important to us. And it's just something that people naturally do when you know you already have your basis covered is that you you want to be a part of your community that you want to to you know build those bonds and so yeah i think part of the the problem that we have now is this this lack of social cohesion this erosion of social cohesion and that if we make sure people have access to basic needs then that social cohesion will grow and so many more things will become possible that just isn't possible now as long as people have their heads down and, you know, trying to just get their own needs um, met. And so is this shift to um, embracing and, and, and instituting 
UBI, something that is required to be done through the federal government and our state government? Or is it possible that we achieve this kind of reimagination outside the bounds of policy? And I ask that question because as you're talking about trust, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's it is largely around the institutions that would be required to have the integrity needed to institute something like this if it were the government that 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 did it. And so how do we reconcile that? Yeah, so there's there's a lot of ways of going about UBI, and then there's also ways of of adopting the um, what UBI is and adapting it in in other ways. So, you know, I would say um, I talk about national UBI just because you know I see this as a as a human right, and I see the federal government as being the most capable of of making it happen in a way that covers everybody. Um, so that's what you know my focus is. Um, but also, you know, this is possible at the state level to some degree. Um, you know, actually, Alaska has had its own UBI since 1982, um, you know, where everyone receives the Alaska dividend um, no matter what. So this is rich or poor, uh, child or adult. Uh, every resident in Alaska receives the their annual dividend. And... You know, without conditions, you know, you don't have to work for it or anything like that. So this really is the closest thing to a UBI uh, in the world. Uh, you know, it, it effectively is one. It's just a little bit, um, you know, smaller because it's around a thousand to two thousand dollars per year, and it's once a year instead of what I'd prefer is is once a month to go along with you know our monthly bills. But it does exist, and any other state could actually. Uh, go about you know utilizing what I call the Alaska model uh, to create some kind of of dividend at the state level um, and even make it monthly if they want to you know it doesn't have to be only a year it could be quarterly but it is possible at the state level and then of course at the city level you could do it too there are are ways of of um, changing the way programs you know existing programs work um, reallocating existing resources in a way that's that's more universal more unconditional um, you know cities can actually choose to do that and that's kind of you know we're seeing over 30 mayors have joined mayors for guaranteed income and they're launching um, basic income pilots in their cities and focusing on in even different segments so you know, let's say you could you could provide, um, uh, like in Santa Clara County in California, there's a program there providing basic income uh, for a year to kids aging out of the foster system. So you know that's something that you know that's a, a marginalized group that finds it uh, you know you see a lot more disproportionately in poverty than other groups, and and that would be a huge difference for that group. You know, even in that that city, and. You know, you could look at at um, uh, pregnant mothers. You could look at uh, at single mothers. You could look at single uh, fathers. You could look at um, uh, at risk youth for, for violence. And 
that's what all these various cities are are doing too. So it's not like doing universal basic income within their cities, um, but they're leveraging unconditionality um, to show that that it's more effective uh, to do it that way. And I think once you show that, then it really opens up the ability for lots of different programs to be um, done differently. And for that revenue to be allocated in a in a, in a better way, uh, but besides just government too, then there's the ability to do things at more community levels. Uh, you know, we're seeing even as a result of the pandemic that that uh, the use of cash has become you know much more popular and widely used than ever before. Um, you know, people realized you know instead of trying to get um, you know um, specific things out there just hey let's just make sure people get money and they can can determine for themselves what it is that they most need and um organizations taking that cash strategy is is something you know that's a a step forward and it's utilizing um what we know about ubi and you know again trusting people in a way that is is very beneficial um you know both to the organization and the person and also, there's um, there's actually a, a um, something new being launched soon uh, called Comingle, and that's something that I'm a part of as well. Where um, let's say you could get a group of of people together um, and voluntarily, uh, you know, set up like their bank account um, so that. As they earn income, then a percentage of that income goes into the pot, and then that pot is distributed, you know, among everybody, so that you know this could create um, at least some uh, amount of monthly uh, economic security um, through just everybody deciding to to join that. Um, so there's ways of of going about this, and you know, I support. Really, you know, all of them uh, as ways of just making sure that people feel more economic security and have more access to resources. You know, one of the things that you mentioned there is self determination, and you know, I I think that our society really suffers from both a lack of imagination and conditions that would help people self determine. You know, this is. You know, looking back at at communities like the Black Panthers and and other you know other communities of color, self determination has been so inhibited by systems of supremacy, be them white supremacy or economic supremacy, and you know, the, I, I think this self determination thing is so vital and key for us even to you know, utilize or operationalize something like unconditional basic income. Yeah, it, it's along these lines, I think it's really important for people to, to understand just how racist our welfare system is. Like the conditions applied, um, you know, vary greatly depending on basically, um, you know, uh, more of a white state or, or more of a, you know, a state with a higher percentage of the black population. Um the the conditions applied will, will differ. So that actually helps increase inequality and the racial inequality gap uh, just through the process of this. So, and also if you're, 
you know, if you're black, you're more likely to be unemployed. And of course, it's not because you're lazy. It's because that the system itself, um, you know, you're you're less likely to to get a job, you know, even based on like your name or something. Um, there's just so much systemic racism um, built into everything that, you know, the more conditions that we remove, that is a way of dramatically, um, you know, making this more equitable um, in a way that that right now is just just systemically um, horrible. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, so I, it's it's really important that we treat everyone equally with the same floor. Um and we just we just don't do that now. And yeah, as far as like enabling people, it's with self determination. Um, and yeah, this is I I look at this as um, you know intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic motivation too. Where you know there's so many things that people want to do, and maybe they don't have time at all to do it, or maybe they're doing only doing it on the side. Um, and they're having to do this extrinsically motivated work that they have no passion for whatsoever. You know, right now, only a third of the workforce in America is engaged by their work. So two thirds of everyone who has a job really doesn't care about what they're doing. And most likely they're caring about something that they're doing outside of work much more. Right. And I think it's that stuff that has much more value to their communities and to society as a whole. Um, if you can, you know, enable that intrinsic motivation so that people are actually doing things because they want to do them, you know, that really even changes um, the product of, of of what's being made. Like I'll call this the the Monsters Inc. argument for basic income, and I have a video, an essay for that as well. And it's like, you know, imagining, um, you know, in this. In the movie Monsters, Inc., uh, the monster's world was was fueled by fear. And so the monsters went around, like, harvesting fear from little kids. And then, like, at the end of the movie, they, you know, discover that, like, the, the joy and, like, laughter of children actually is far more powerful. And so they're able to, you know, switch all of, like, their monster society to, like, you know, harvesting joy instead of harvesting fear. Mm-hmm. And it's better for everybody. And I think that that's... What we have, like we have a society that that is built on fear and it forces people to do things that they don't want to do um, based on like the fear of poverty. Um, and if we remove that and if we remove that 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 fear, then people would be doing things because that brings them joy, that that they're happier to do it. And that would be better. Like imagine, you know, what's What's the meal that you would prefer to eat? Uh, you know, someone who's forced a gunpoint to make the meal or someone who like feels that you know, this great joy in cooking to their goal is to like make the tastiest dish that would ever be possible. <laughs> and I think that, um, you know, the, the answer, of course, is that, you know, you're going to want to eat something that that someone really takes a passion in in creating and and. That's what society could be, is that we could have society where people are actually doing the things because they choose to do them and they love to do them. And you don't even have to do it for money, that you could do it for free. You could actually create more of like a a gift economy as a result of UBI as well, where because you already have your your basics that, you know, you could say – paint something and and give it to someone in, instead of selling it. And I think that that creating that kind of, you know, non-monetary economy um, would also 
be very transformative. And I guess that goes back to what you were saying before too about kind of, you know, post-capitalism kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Is that this is a a door at least to to making that kind of thing possible? Where actually you can do unpaid work in a way that you can't do now. That you can give your um, you know labor, your passion uh, to society. I would also have to think that there is a reciprocal outcome to that on the side of ethics, because if. If two thirds of our workforce is unhappy in the work that they're doing, mm-hmm. how many of those are unhappy in the work that they're doing because the situation or the ethics or the um, kind of environment that they're being forced to do that work in is unhealthy, unsafe, um, uncomplimentary in, in whatever way that is. Mm-hmm. I would have to think that this also would um, force in some ways a return to a- an ethics of of communalism amongst employers. Because if there's a universal income and people are able to be more free in where they choose to dedicate their time working, um, employers that are unhealthy and uns- are, are creating unhealthy and unsafe, you know, work environments, mm-hmm. it's going to be incumbent on them to either fix that, or they're going to really struggle to have anyone be able to work for yeah. them. And so I have to also think that this has a an effect down the line as it relates to our ethics with one another. Um, because those things will be transformed by the power that people are provided through through yeah. UBI. Um, it's I mean it's a it's a it's a utopian dream to think about that kind of you know imagination and that kind of revitalization that could happen both within our, our us as individuals within our our communities and within the systems that are creating oppressive scenarios for, you know, us on a, on a day-to-day basis. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Like, so the work incentive should always lie on the employer. And, and yet the way we look at it is the work incentive on the individual. You know, we, we believe that we have to, you know, force people into work and because they don't have any work incentive and that's all backwards because of course it's the employer this should be incentivizing work by saying, okay, I'm going to pay you enough money that this job becomes something that you want to do, or I'm going to offer a job with enough meaning doing something helpful to society that you want to, you know, proudly do it. And that the, the benefits are good enough, that the work environment is good enough. And yeah, right now, employers don't really have that incentive. And that's part of the, the problem. Sure. It's all it's all backwards. Right. You know, that, that reminds me too of there was a um a story from the the German uh base income community. And so there's a crowdfunding there where like um in Germany they um uh people donate money to this fund and then once they're uh they gather enough uh then they provide another person with a, a thousand euros a month for a year. And over the course of years, um, I think over like three or 400 people have, have received this, uh, you know, basically for a year now. And one of them 
who received this was actually like an, an intern and they called it like a, like an unconditional intern kind of position where the person actually, instead of being raffled off, um, you know, this uh, award, um, that they, it was like their job, but it was an unconditional job. So they could choose like not to go to work if they wanted to. And that changed the incentive. So like there's just uh, one time where they, they got an argument because like the person, the intern wanted to do more stuff and she didn't feel like she was being trusted with enough stuff. And, you know, the little argument and she was like, well, I'm not going to show up to work tomorrow. And, uh, um, you know, the, the employer, the, um, was, was, you know, disappointed and, and you felt that, you know, that they themselves like screwed up and, uh, and after that fight and the next day she should, she showed up and he, he felt like this joy that this person who didn't have to be there and, you know, he'd gotten an argument with them the previous day, um, actually happily showed up and wanted, you know, to, to do this. And like, just think about, um, you know, how many employers are out there right now that, you know, they're full of people working for them that, that don't want to be there. They don't like them. And imagine if suddenly every employer knew that the people who were there wanted to be there, no matter, you know, they were choosing to be there. And so it's even from the employer side where that could be transformative, um, versus now. Sure. Sure. Wow, Scott, this has been, <laughs> this has been the exact conversation that I think we, um, needed to add to, um, you know, our, our understanding of community and how we are called to be with one another. And, um, we can't thank you enough for taking your time out to kind of share this, this vision with our listeners and, and engage with Robin and I. Um, I'd love for you to take a, a quick moment to let our listeners know how they can be in touch with you, what the best way to follow your work is. Um, friends, I will post a link to the Lego video in the podcast notes. So um, you, you, you'll be able to get to that quickly. But Scott, let folks know how they can how they can reach out to you or how they can be in contact. Sure. If you're on Twitter, you can follow me at Scott Santons, and that's where I'm most active. Um, but you can also find me, my blog is scottsantons.com, where I have a, a pretty in-depth uh, UBI FAQ that I encourage people to uh, go through as well. Excellent. Well, again, thank you so much, Dr. Robin. This has been um, amazing. Amazing. Just the, the right kind of impactful conversation that we needed to have at this moment. And um, friends, I hope you will you know, continue to listen and continue to think deeply about where you can be involved in this kind of work of you know, building and, and advocating for community and togetherness. Um, get your hands dirty, figure out how, how you can do that on a, on a regular basis or on an occasional basis, whatever your life allows you. And don't forget that if you want to be in touch with Robin or I, you can tweet at us at Activist Theology. Activist and Theology share a T. Don't forget that. Um, and all of our other socials are open. Our, our inboxes are, are yours. And we are we continue to look forward to hearing from you. Dr. Robin? It's, I mean, I feel like I got free in this conversation. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, the right, it's the right tone to end on. And yeah. we're, Scott, we're grateful for you. Thank you for the invite. Um, Dr. Robin, thanks for doing this with me. Yeah. See you all next week. 
Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, activist and theology share a T. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. So early, they show me no.